In this episode, we talk about things like sex and rape and even marital rape. So please listen at your own discretion. Jesus did not avoid looking at women. What Jesus chose to do was to truly see women. And if we're going to defeat lust, guys need to choose to truly see who she is, not just try to avoid her. Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Exvangelical Podcast, where being labeled a heretic is a good thing, if it means refusing to conform to toxic, harmful expressions of faith. We address your questions about God, politics, how we got here, and how to move forward. Nothing is off limits in our conversations with scholars, spiritual seekers, and activists in our quest to uncover the heart of faith. We're your hosts, Melanie and Gary Ellen, and this is Holy Heretics. Our guest today is Sheila Ray Gregoire, who is the face behind ToLoveHonorAndVacuum.com, which is the largest single blogger marriage blog. Well, that is, until it became so popular, she had to invite others in to help her with the endeavor. She's also a sought-after speaker and the award-winning author of nine books, including The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex. But the reason why we've invited her here today is because of her brand new book, which is called The Great Sex Rescue. The Lies You Were Taught, and How to Recover What God Intended. And you'll see here in a couple minutes that that, this book is a bombshell. So welcome, Sheila. We're honored that you would join us today. Well, thanks for having me. I think this is right up your alley, so I think we're going to have some fun here. Yeah, I mean, who doesn't want to talk about sex, right? So (laughs) let's just jump in and do it. Um, As Melanie said, clear from your bio, you've been writing about marriage and sex for quite some time now. So um, two quick questions. What made you write a book called The Great Sex Rescue? And what does sex need to be rescued from? Okay. Well, first of all, nobody grows up thinking I'm going to become a sex writer because that's just weird, right? <laughs> but um, but I, was, I was that typical mommy blogger. You know, you write about parenting and, and, and mom stuff and housework back in 2008, 2009, when blogging was really getting big. And I found that the more I wrote about sex, the more traffic I got, like who knew? Uh, and at the same time, my husband and I were speaking at marriage conferences and we always got stuck with a sex talk because nobody else wanted to give it. And he's a physician. He'll talk about anything and I'll talk about anything. So it's like we were slotted into sex without even meaning it or, any, or or anything like that. And then over the years, as I've been writing about sex, I realized that no matter how much good content I put out there, people still tend to have the same issues. And we realized about two years ago that the issue was that we have a basic foundational problem in the evangelical church in that what we're learning about sex is just wrong. And so I decided to do something about it. And when I do something, I do it big, like go big or go home. So we decided to survey 20,000 women, like the largest survey that's ever been done of, of Christian women to see marital satisfaction, sexual satisfaction, and how that correlates to some of the beliefs that we thought were toxic. And yeah, got some pretty interesting results. I hope my wife was not a part of that 20,000, by the way. I just want want to put that out there right now. (laughs) So, okay. So what were some of these um, 
things that were harmful or that you thought were harmful? And then did that survey confirm that or, or how did that all work? Yeah, so we measured a ton of things. Like, first of all, we started just by with basic marital and sexual satisfaction questions. So they had to write down all their stuff about how satisfied they were with their sex life before they even were exposed to any of the beliefs so that we weren't priming them for anything. And we measured a bunch of different things. But the ones that we found that were really statistically significant are the ones that we hear a lot. And we probably have always had problems with them, but they're very widespread. So for instance, here's a typical one. All men struggle with lust. It is every man's battle. Mm. We, you know, there's, there's a whole book series called that, yeah. right? Every right. Man's yep. Battle sold 4 million copies, I think, in that book series. And we found that when women are taught this and when they believe it, it causes their trust in their husbands to plummet. It means they're far less likely to get aroused when they have sex, um, less likely to reach orgasm. Um, more likely to have sex only because they feel like they have to and not because they want to, um, more likely to report feeling used after sex, all kinds of just really nasty things. Hmm. Wow. And is it because they sort of see their their husbands as dirty old men or like what's <laughs> what's the correlation with I've been told that my my husband is just this lustful monster and and now I'm not aroused sexually. What's what's the connection there? Well, interestingly, this is the one belief that we studied that hurts women if they've been taught it, even if they don't believe it. Most of the other things that we were measured, that we were measuring had negative effects if they believe it. This one, you don't even have to believe it. If you are in a community where this is widely taught, you're going to end up not liking the men in your life. Okay, that makes sense. You're going to end up not trusting them as much. You're going to end up just having worse sex. And and I do think it's because of the way that we see sex. Uh, when sex is framed as something which is kind of ugly to women, then it's hard to get excited about it. And when you see sex as something which is largely dehumanizing, he he is going to lust after everything that moves. And there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. That's just the way men were made. It makes women really not like guys <laughs> or really mm. not get excited about sex. Mm. Mm. Uh, there's a lot there um, because you mentioned the Every Man's Battle book. Um, but it seems like that was in like all the books that I was told to read, if I like remember correctly, because I had to read... Um, What's the one? Love and Respect? Yeah. Yep. And then I mm -hmm. also read one by the Eldridges called Love and War. And I and I read the old books. I When I got engaged, my dad gave me three books to read. Well, he gave them to all of us girls and our future spouses were supposed to read them, too. And I was the first one of my sisters to get married. So I... I, I read them all and then told my sisters, do not read these books. But one of them was the um, uh, the the active marriage. Is that what it's called? Yes. Yes. And was, so is mm -hmm. all this is this idea there, too? Like, I feel like yes, it, it I is. remember that. Yeah, it is. Um, it says men. I'm, I'm going to quote this wrong. Um, it's something like men. All men have an issue with lust, but women have to cultivate. 
you know, the problem. So like men are, men are born being visual, but women aren't. So it's, it's very much there as well. Yeah. So, mm. cause what we did was we, we identified these beliefs that we know were harmful, both from our survey and by looking at peer reviewed research. And then we looked at the top um, marriage and sex books to see where these teachings were found. And some of them were like throughout the book. Some of them, there were only a couple of books that really taught it. But yeah, the lust message is, is throughout most of the books. And mm. I really think that this is a very dehumanizing message for guys too. I think that's often missed in the conversation is that the lust message doesn't just hurt women. Like it hurts men. Because I, I think guys have really been sold a bill of goods here and so much shame has been heaped on men because guys have basically been told, if you notice a woman has breasts, you've already lusted after her or yeah. you're going to be tempted to lust after her. And so you need to bounce your eyes so that you make sure that you never see that. And then guys just feel so hypervigilant all the time, like they're lusting or like they're sinning just by living in a culture that has women in it. Right. And sexual yeah. attraction is not lust. Mm. So let's talk about that for a second, <laughs> um, because I think um, I think you're onto something. So from from the guy in the room, um, I think it also tells us another thing that we get a free pass that we just can't help ourselves. So you're just going to lust. So can you help um, us maybe differentiate between sexual attraction or noticing something that is beautiful, um, but that's not necessarily lust? Is, is that what you're saying? Yeah, Jesus said, whoever looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery. So it's looking with lust. He does not say whoever sees a beautiful woman, or even whoever looks at a beautiful woman, it's looking with intention. And so that intention has to be there. And sexual attraction is a biological reaction. And by the way, women have it too. <laughs> this, that's another thing that's often missing from this conversation. Mm. <laughs> Increasingly, MRI studies of, of people's visual nature are showing that women have a visual nature as much as men do. We just don't react to exactly the same stimuli, but it's the same parts of the brain that light up. Mm. Um, and so this idea that women are not visual, you know, is, is quite off as well. Um, but I, I think that what guys have been told is think of lust, like a moving sidewalk at an airport. You know, you get on that moving sidewalk when you see a woman and as you go along that moving sidewalk, you move into, you know, noticing her figure, um, getting attracted to her figure, imagining what she might look like naked, you know, to full blown lust. And it feels like you can't get off that moving sidewalk. Like once you're on it, when you notice her, then you're going to go all the way to the end. And so that's why you have to take special care that you never get on that moving sidewalk. So you can never notice anything. So you spend your life bouncing your eyes and trying to avoid women. And yet, what if it's not like a moving sidewalk at all? What if it's just like a staircase and you can get off anytime you want? Hmm. You know, you notice she's beautiful and it might register to you and you might think, wow, she's really hot. And then you go on with your life and you don't think another thing of it. 
it's quite possible to do that. And yet the books talk about like, that's absolutely impossible. And so because he can't help but lust, the the responsibility lies with women to make sure that they don't inflame his lust. Mm, Right. Yeah, I, I love that differentiation between a staircase and the moving sidewalk um, because I think that's like that just becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy if you say like well once you're on it you can't get off well then you just you think you have no ability to stop what has started um, yeah and then you spend your life bouncing your eyes and and acting like women themselves are just inherently lustful lust I don't know whatever the word Lust is inducing. for yes yeah there we well, go <laughs> yeah. and and what's so interesting about that too is that the the prescription for lust like the way that you're supposed to deal with lust as a guy actually agrees with lust's definition of women so what lust says essentially is you you exist for me to use sexually for my sexual gratification in whatever way that may be so i am going to look at you i'm going to imagine you i'm going to enjoy your body for my own gratification and that's what lust really is is using someone for your own gratification without their consent without them being part of that etc but what bouncing your eyes does <laughs> you know is it still says you simply exist as a sexual object Hmm. Yeah, I'm just going to choose to not look at you. So Exactly, yeah. but I still yep. see you entirely as a sexual object and not as a whole person made in the mm-hmm. image of God. Jesus did not avoid looking at women. What Jesus chose to do was to truly see women. Mm-hmm. And if you. we're going to defeat lust, guys need to choose to truly see who she is, not just try to avoid her. Mm. Uh, yeah because that's objectifying you know even even if you're choosing to do that from good intentions like okay i don't want to object objectify this woman but you're still doing it because you're you're limiting her to an object of of potential lust so wow i mean that really does kind of reframe the conversation so i want to go back a little bit um just to the stats here, you mentioned 20,000 women. That's a huge sample size. Um, <laughs> why that number? And how does that, the weight of that number really verify the findings uh, from your research? We wanted a huge enough survey that people wouldn't question us because we knew that what we were going to find was going to be explosive to the evangelical world because we really are taking on some of the biggest name books here. And a lot of surveys that have been done in evangelicalism have used a sample size of 400. Shanti Felton is the most famous one. She does a lot of research and her survey sizes tend to be about 400 people. We wanted to go huge. And in peer-reviewed journals, um, usually a sample size of 1,000 to 2,000 is typical. We wanted to just be as big as possible <laughs> um, <laughs> so that people would see how how huge a data set we had. Because the larger a data set you have, the less you can actually criticize that survey. And we, we tried to do it to academic standards. So we are pursuing peer review on a number of different angles right now. So we're hoping to have a number of peer-reviewed articles out in the near future. So, And what that means is just journal articles in academic journals where... Um, people with PhDs have looked at your research and said, yeah, this is good research. 
Gotcha. Um, because that's never been done in the evangelical world before, as far as I know. And we just mm-hmm. think that we want to call the evangelical world to more. Um, that if something is truly representing Jesus, then we should have no problem doing it properly. And we should have no fear of the truth. Hmm. There's one more reason we tried to do, we tried to go big is that we, we, one of our research questions was about a problem, which is relatively rare, um, but all too common among evangelicals, which is sexual pain in women. Um, most of us know what erectile dysfunction is. You know, you watch the prices, right? There's going to be an art, an advertisement for those little blue pills, but very few people know the word vaginismus. I don't. What, can you say that again? Vaginismus. Yeah. It is a sexual dysfunction that women suffer from where the um, vaginal wall muscles contract. So they get really tight and you can't relax them even if you want to. Like it's an involuntary tightening. Uh, And it means that penetration is very difficult and painful, if not impossible. We know that religious conservative women suffer from this at around twice the rate of the general population. And that's been well known in literature since the 70s. Wow. Wow. So this is our problem, evangelicals. And yet no one talks about it. (laughs) And uh, we wanted to be able to have a large enough survey size that we would have a a lot of women with this problem so that we could slice and dice the data and try to figure out what was causing it. And we did do that. So we were really happy about that. Um, but to give some numbers to it, just over 20%, I think, I think it's around 22% of, of women um, have suffered primary sexual pain or, or vaginismus and around 7% to the point that uh, penetration is impossible. Wow. So what's the cause? There's a number of different things. Um, first of all, this is a multifaceted thing. <laughs> so uh, this was part of my story as well. And I, I still think that a lot of it was doing ballet as a child because you learn to hold your pelvic floor muscles in very bad ways. So some of it is just that. But <laughs> what we also found was that there's a number of beliefs that are co-related. And I think when you have a bunch of different factors all together, you're more likely to experience this. Um, And one of the biggest beliefs that we found was implicated in this is the belief that a wife is obligated to give her husband sex when he wants it. Uh, About 43% of women reported being taught that before they were married. Around, I think it was 39% of women said they believed it before they were married. And if you believed that message, the increased chance of you having vaginismus was almost statistically the same as the increased chance had you been sexually abused. Wow. So, yeah. So it's like the obligation sex message, that's what we called it, has almost the same effect on your body as trauma does. Gee whiz. Because both abuse and the obligation sex message say to you, you don't matter. Mm. Someone else has the right to use your body however they want without your consent but this is this is part and parcel of the evangelical conversation about sex um i mean i is it not if anyone anyone from james dobson to the love and respect books to many of the books that we've already mentioned um Have they not been saying for years that, you know, part of your duty as a woman is first and foremost to submit 
and especially to submit sexually. And so Mm -hmm. this this uh, what I call patriarchy and misogyny uh, has direct implications in the bedroom because we were told uh, as men that the good wife uh, submits in all things. And so when you want sex, she has to be available. I, I mean, am I crazy? Did I grow up in some weird version of evangelicalism? But th- nope. this seems pretty normal. And it's wrong. That is one of the most widespread, it's one of the most widespread messages. I, it's in Power of a Praying Wife. It's in Every Man's Battle. It's in Love and Respect, loudly and clearly. Um, it's in pretty much all the books that we read. There were some nice exceptions. Boundaries in Marriage was an exception. Sacred Marriage was an exception. Um, Gift of Sex was an exception. But in in the majority of ev- evangelical books, that's definitely there. Uh, and and they use First Corinthians seven three to five to to justify that. Um, uh, those verses for those of you who may not know, and I'm not going to quote these by heart. I'm sorry, but basically it says um, the husband must fulfill his marital duties to his wife, and the wife must fulfill her marital duties to her husband. The wife's body doesn't belong to her, but also to the husband. The husband's body does not belong to him, but also to the wife. And do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and fasting, but then come together again so that you won't be tempted. Um, that's, those are the verses. That was pretty good, by the way. Yeah. I'm just not, I don't think that was word perfect. I mean, I think that was all close. the stuff it was, was in there, but yeah. <laughs> um, and they use those verses to say, therefore you can't say no. And yet that is so not what those verses are saying. Mm. Because if you look at, the, there's so many things we could pick out of these verses, but, but first of all, it begins with the husband has it having a duty to the wife. Like it's the husband's duty that is mentioned first, not the wife's. And everything that the husband gets, the wife gets too. So it's a picture of complete and utter mutuality. Mm-hmm. And it says that the that the husband's body does not belong to him, but also to the wife. Now, Paul is writing this at Roman times, at a time when husbands actually owned their wives' bodies to the extent that they could murder them and not be prosecuted for it. And yet in the middle of all that, Paul says, hey, wives own the husband's bodies. So that was actually a revolutionary thing to say. And we mm-hmm. miss that, I think. Oh, um, Totally. Yeah, but beyond that, this is actually the only place where authority is really mentioned in marriage in the in the New Testament, and yet the authority is completely shared. Mm. So how did it get so twisted? How did how well, did we get to this point of saying women owe everything to their husbands and husbands can demand it? I think it becomes it comes down to our definition of sex. So if I were to ask you, did you have sex last night? And don't worry, I'm not actually asking you that, so I don't I don't expect an answer. But, <laughs> but but if I were to ask you that, chances are you're picturing something in your head, like you're picturing what I'm asking, and what you're picturing is something along the lines of intercourse. Like, did the husband put slot A into slot B and move around until he climaxed? Like that that <laughs> tends to be, you know, what we picture. Move around. Yes, that's that's uh, that's that's, the <laughs> that's good exactly what you were for, thinking for a lot of us. Yes. <laughs> Um, but, and that's our definition of sex is intercourse, but that's a very male definition because in that definition, she could be lying there making a grocery list in her head and it would still Mm -hmm. count as sex. Hmm. 
because her experience is completely missing from our definition of sex. And what if 1 Corinthians 7 was not talking about intercourse, but was talking instead about a sexual relationship the way that it is supposed to be? And so if you look at If you look at scripture, we see a couple of markers of what sex was supposed to be. First of all, from 1 Corinthians 7, it's totally mutual. But also from Genesis 4, Adam knew his wife Eve. I mean, we laugh at the wording of that. But I think it actually tells us something really cool, which is Adam knew his wife. It's the same word that David uses in the Psalms, you know, search me and know me, O God. It's God telling us that sex isn't just physical, but it's this deep intimacy, this deep longing to be connected. So sex is mutual, it's intimate, and from Song of Songs, we know it's pleasurable. So I think what Paul was saying is that a mutually intimate and pleasurable sexual experience should be part of your marriage. Absolutely but not one-sided intercourse. That has nothing to do with one-sided intercourse. Because if sex is simply one-sided intercourse, then how could he be depriving her of anything by not having sex with her? Because she's getting nothing out of it anyway. Mm. (laughs) Like she's already (laughs) being deprived, you know? (laughs) I mean, you know, we've got a 47-point orgasm gap according to our survey. So, and by that, I mean that like 95 to 96% of men um, orgasm almost always or always during a sexual encounter, but for women, it's only 48 to 49%. Whoa. So we got a 47 point orgasm gap. She's already deprived people. So if you're <laughs> going to talk about who's deprived, it ain't him. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, I, I, I would love for you to analyze this phrase, but my wife has been saying this for 26 years of marriage to me. Um, she, she has been saying, um, Sex is all day. And when I first heard it, I'm like, oh, that sounds fun. And she's like, no, 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 no. That that's that's not what I mean. Like, sex is all day. Um, it's a continual um intimate connection that allows us to enjoy to mutually enjoy one another. When when the act of, of of sexual intercourse actually happens, and so it's not me jumping up, grabbing my coffee, not talking to her, running off to work, not checking in, um, not doing the laundry. You know, it's and then coming home and expecting her to be uh, to flip a switch and and be on demand for me. And and sadly, I, like I said earlier, I think so many of us men who grew up in the church just thought that's what happens, and that there is no um, there is no bond or intimacy or sexual connection outside of the bedroom that then leads to that mutual loving um, arousing experience. It, it, are you, can you validate what she's saying, or is that is that a part of the problem as well, or? Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that we found is that people who have higher marital satisfaction are also going to have higher sexual satisfaction. And you can argue, well, is it the chicken or the egg? Like which comes first? But what we found in our focus groups as well is that sex can't make up for a bad marriage. Right. So just because you're having a lot of sex doesn't mean you're going to have high marital satisfaction, but having high marital satisfaction tends to result in better sex. So 
you know, when you feel heard, when you feel like your opinions matter in marriage, it's much easier for her to also tell him what she wants in bed. It's much easier for him to also spend enough time on foreplay, like all those things that matter. So they definitely go hand in hand. But you know, Melanie, earlier you were talking about um, self-fulfilling prophecies. Mm -hmm. And I think this really affects us in this area too, because, you know, Gary Allen was saying that like sex is how you treat each other all day. Like it's so much more than just the act. But what so many of our books do is they don't just reduce sex to the act of intercourse. They actually reduce intercourse even more so that it's only about a husband's physical release. Mm. Like they, they, they make sex into only his climax, which is just kind of gross. Like love and respect literally says that a husband has a need for physical release just as you need emotional release. I don't know what emotional release is. Like I picture the movie, The Proposal, <laughs> when Sandra Bullock is in the forest with Betty White. Do you remember that scene? And she's oh, like, yeah. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's all I can picture when I hear that. <laughs> that's amazing. You, you know, but, but like he's saying husbands need physical release and every man's battle says that again and again, you know, a husband can be tempted. So make sure that you give him release. Um, and uh, Power of a Praying Wife says, don't check the calendar and make sure that you don't let too much time um, go by before you, uh, before you meet his needs again. And it's all about meeting his needs and physical release. And it just makes it sound really distasteful. And when you, mm. when you talk about it like that, should we be surprised if women don't have a high libido? <laughs> no. <laughs> wow. Like if women are told our whole lives, you don't need sex. He does. You'll never understand his need for sex. Um, he needs it like you will never need anything more. Um, his need is so great. And then people get married and she just isn't that into sex. Well, it's like, yeah, because she's been told her whole life she doesn't like it and she doesn't need it and it's not for her. Well, and it's dirty. Yeah. <laughs> well, and in my experience, I... I was sexually active before I got married. It was like during a time where I was a teenager and I was like, forget this. And I mean, I I would say I had a very high libido during that time in my life. Then I kind of came back to God and, you know, changed the way I thought about a lot of things. And, and then eventually got married and, you know, wanted to have this godly marriage. And it was like I had no libido anymore. And I, it's been years of trying to figure out, like, where did it go? And so much of what you're saying makes sense because it's like once I once I came back into the Christian world, there were all these messages about, like, well, it's for him and not for you. And, like, when I wasn't in the Christian world, there weren't those messages. So it was like, okay, this is fun and it's for both of us and um, I'm not doing this out of obligation. Like it's something that I want. And so I was, I felt freer. And I think that's really fascinating, but you, you mentioned, um, like, don't let your husband go for too long or like he will be tempted. I want to talk about that. Mm -hmm. Like, why is there, why, why were they saying if you go too long, then he will be tempted? Like what is behind that idea? There's a couple of things. So one of the one of the other beliefs we measured was have sex so that your husband won't watch porn or be tempted to watch porn. That's something else that we're taught heavily. Um, that that the way to stop your husband from watching porn is to have sex. Um, every man's battle literally says to women, you know, once he quits cold turkey, be like a merciful vial of methadone for him. What? 
What does that mean? So you're like a drug. You're like, like a substitute drug to stop him from wanting the porn. Like that's all uh, you are. Right. Okay. So you so need to become the porn star so that he doesn't look at other ones. Yeah. Which is just so dehumanizing and gross. Like, I mean, seriously, oh like that's gross. And and they say it twice. Um, your wife can be like methadone for you when your temperature is rising. Like they don't just say it once. So it wasn't just a mistake. Like they, they doubled down on it. And, mm-hmm. and that's the message that they give is when you quit lust and porn, you take your sexual energy from that and you transfer it to your wife. And they say, once you may have come to her for five bowls of sexual gratification a week, but now you come to her for 10. Oh my! Uh, I don't yeah. even know what to do with that, honestly. Like, I know. I, and- <laughs> I don't know what to do with it. Oh, but you want to know what so the next? The next line is the best. You want to know what they said right after that? They please, said, "Please tell us." She will find this vaguely pleasant. Yeah, I mean, um, and, but and that's that's hint- what that's <laughs> hinting. That's hinting at she will like rape. I mean, it, I the, and the, the, there seems to be a really hidden, sinister uh, rape fetish in some of this. Let's just go there. Like, it's that I have all the power as a male and I can't help myself and you have to be there for me. And and now, oh, goody, goody, because we're married, um, I now have I a blank it. check. Exactly. And you are there for me. That's. That's really disturbing when you begin to, to to think about it. Yeah, and it's amazing how many of our evangelical books actually have stories of marital rape without calling it that, or they do call it that and they don't think it's a big deal. Right. What? Um, like His Needs, Her Needs portrays a 32-year-old guy who uh, finds that his wife has no libido and he's frustrated and he says, I feel like I'm begging her or even raping her. but there's no commentary that sex and rape are not the same thing and if you feel like you're raping her you probably are and you need to stop (laughs) um or but the worst one really was the act of marriage um and that book was the go-to book for anyone who got married between 1976 and 1995 like everybody read it i read it Mm -hmm. most of our pastors who are pastors today read it I mean, it still sells, you know, it's, it's an older book now it's gone through many different revisions, but it was the go-to book. So this was actually quite a transformational book. And it was also one of the first books to talk about the fact that women could feel pleasure and should feel pleasure. So, so it was groundbreaking in some positive ways, but it had a lot of really negative stuff. And one of them was the story of aunt Matilda. And this came up because a young woman, Tim LaHaye, was describing a young woman who was getting married and her aunt Matilda came to her and told her that sex was awful and was just something she was going to have to put up with. Uh, But basically sex was just legalized rape. And he explains Aunt Matilda's story that when she was married, she was held down and raped, kicking and screaming on her wedding night. And this continued throughout her marriage. And Tim LaHaye said, isn't it awful that she never understood how great sex was and that she gave her niece such a bad view of sex? And then he says that Aunt Matilda and her equally unhappy husband (laughs) dealt with this. So he, he calls the rapist equally unhappy as the rape victim. Oh, dude. And. 
And he never mentions that, you know, this is illegal. Now, maybe at the time he was writing, it wasn't, but I read the fourth edition from the late nineties. By that time, marital rape was illegal in most jurisdictions. Um, and no one took that anecdote out. Mm. Nobody said, Hey, maybe we shouldn't call a rapist equally unhappy as his rape victim. Yeah. So I want to ask about that. Um, have any of these men in particular, and maybe even their spouses that helped them write these books, have they recounted any of this garbage? Um, for instance, we have spoken to Joshua Harris, who was one of the godfathers of the purity culture movement. And thankfully, uh, he has had the courage and the uh, humility to to step away from a lot of what he proposed, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Have have any of these individuals uh, from some of the books we've we've mentioned already said, you know what, we're really sorry, we were wrong. Um anybody come forward? Um I there's one um gentleman who has just been really humble and is actually looking at his stuff. I, I don't know if I can say publicly yet. Um so I, I, I won't, um, but the, but he was really encouraging to us. However, he was not one of the best sellers that we looked at, like the, the like mm. one of the top, top books he was on our list, but not one of the top books that we looked at. And what we found, um, is that we are getting a lot of pushback behind the scenes and mm. people are very upset at what we've written because we are taking on really the biggest names in evangelicalism right. in Some our book. sacred sexual cows here. Yeah. And remember some books we did rate really well. We we created a 13 um uh, sorry, a 12 point rubric of healthy sexuality. Um and we ran all of the books through it. And some books scored really well. Gift of Sex by the Penners scored well, Sacred Marriage, Boundaries in Marriage, Intimate Issues, those all scored well. But everything else basically failed. Um and some failed way worse than others. Um our absolute bestseller, Love and Respect, did the worst. And we also, yeah, um, because he said that sex was all for men. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. He never once mentioned that women could feel pleasure. In fact, uh, he had this one funny story where the mother is telling the daughter who doesn't want to have sex, why would you deprive him of something which takes so little time and makes him so happy? And I just find it funny that somebody who believed women should feel sexual pleasure would emphasize sex's brevity above all right. else. I, I just thought that was humorous. Um, you know, but like, let's just sell women on having sex because it doesn't take very long. Like then you're doing it wrong, bud, but whatever. Right. Yeah. Just give him a minute, just give him a minute and a half. He'll be done. You, you know, know? <laughs> like, what? Like, like, you know, and, and there's just nothing in there about women feeling pleasure. There's only, um, don't deprive him. If you do, he's likely to have an affair. The cold hard, hard truth is that you know, many, most affairs are caused by women not having sex. I'm not quoting that exactly, but it's something like that. Um, yeah, men come under satanic attack if they don't get release. Um, that men lust and women have to understand their struggle with lust um, because otherwise you're rejecting his maleness. Like all kinds of weird, weird stuff. Okay, real quick, though, we didn't, I don't think we got to the second reason why um, they say like, don't deprive your husband for too long. Cause then think bad things. Oh yeah. Happen. Oh I yeah. The that. second reason, uh -huh, the 72 hour rule, <laughs> the, <laughs> so, <what? laughs> the 72 hour rule. And most women will have heard of this. Have you ever heard of it, Melanie? The 72 hour rule. 
I don't think so. Okay, it's in a lot of our books, and it, it's all over Christian blogs. Um, uh, Every Man's Battle says, don't let him go more than 72 hours, including during your period. Like It, it has this one woman who said, that she used to have trouble with this during her monthly cycle or when she had small children, but she realized that by keeping his cup filled up, that he would be less, he would be, it would be easier for him to maintain his purity or something like that. Um, you know, Kevin Lehman says, if you're not willing to have sex every 48 to 72 hours, don't get married. Uh, and says, you know, during your period, which is a very difficult time for him, that you should give him a hand job or something. Wait. Okay, so I haven't heard it called the 72-hour rule, but I've definitely heard that idea. Like, if you go too long, Mm -hmm. But it's actually 72 hours. And the funny thing was we saw this in so many of the books, and, like, they're referencing each other. We couldn't figure out where this came from, so we looked at medical literature. So we did all the peer-reviewed stuff. Like, is there something magical about hour 73 where he's just (laughs) incredibly frustrated and is unable to be nice to you anymore? And there's nothing like we could find nothing at all. Um, What we did find were some cross-cultural studies of masturbation um, habits among young males. And they found that um, the time between masturbation episodes varied based on the country. Oh, so Swedish boys masturbate at different rates than Japanese boys, than Nigerian boys, than American boys. So it's not biological. (laughs) It's Mm. cultural. Wow. Okay, so there is nothing biological about hour 73, but we finally figured out where it came from, which is James Dobson in a book from like 1977 said that because men's testicles fill up every 72 hours, they need to be relieved every 72 hours. But he had no evidence of that? He just Right, no said it? nothing medical, it was just his opinion and it's become like the rule that we hear all the time. What? Oh my gosh. I'm just. I, I, I would love to be videoing this. I mean, the, the, my facial expressions for <laughs> yeah. the last 35 minutes have been contor- contorted into just all kinds of weirdness. I'm just well, saying. Uh, me too. And what's crazy, Sheila, I don't know if you've heard this. I recently found out he also made up the idea that women speak, you know, 50,000 yeah. words a day and men only. Only speak, you know, 10,000 Did you see that on TikTok? Abraham Piper yes. was doing that on TikTok. Yes. yes. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, wait, wait, wait. Like, this isn't scientific. And we just think mm-hmm. it is because he said it. Yep. And so now yep. I'm just like, my jaw is just to the floor right now. <laughs> but let me let me tell you a 72 hour story because I love it. So after we surveyed 20,000 women, we did a number of focus groups and then we did a number of interviews. Um, so follow up. Some women left us their email addresses. We followed up and we, we were talking about specific things with some women. And one told us this story. So she gets married and she knows the 72 hour rule. So she's very careful. Every three days she initiates sex and they have sex. And this several years go by and she's starting to feel really undesired. Like, why doesn't my husband ever initiate? And very like he doesn't he's not really attracted to me. I'm doing all the work. And so she sat down with him and she said, I just I I feel really alone, like really undesirable. And why don't you ever want sex? And he said, I'm just trying to keep up to you. (laughs) And so they Mm. had this conversation and it turns out that he didn't 
need sex every three days. He had no intention of going to watch porn if he didn't have sex. And he was appalled that she would even be scared of that. And mm. so they made, they made a vow that they would never um, have sex just because they were worried that they were supposed to, but they would only initiate when they wanted to. And they settled into about once a week, you know, and it varies who initiates and it's, and everybody's perfectly happy. <laughs> um Gosh. There's another story that we heard by a woman who was also doing the 72-hour rule thing. And after her third baby, um, sex just wasn't feeling as good. She was going through a lot of deconstruction of her faith. That she was just It was just a difficult emotional time. Um, and she had talked to her husband about this obligation sex message that she believed. And he really didn't want duty sex. And so they decided they just weren't going to do that anymore. She was always free to say no. Even during the middle of an encounter, if she decided she didn't want to continue, that was perfectly a-okay with him. And so she was given the freedom to do what she wanted to do. And now you know how often they make love? How often? Every 72 hours. (laughs) (laughs) But But I'm sure it feels so different. It feels so different for her and for him. Because she wants to. And this is the thing. When we don't give women the ability to say no, then we also aren't giving them the ability to say yes. Mm. That's great. Mm. Hey, so we've talked a ton about kind of what's wrong and you are alluding maybe to better pathways forward, even even by these last two stories. Um what are what are some of the secrets of a, a great sex life? Um, because when I, you know, I think of the term biblical view of sexuality, I mean, hot, passionate sex does not uh, quickly <laughs> come to mind. And yet there seems to be something there. Um, and so what's the secret? What's the secret for individuals who really do want to pursue a mutually beneficial sex life? Well, in The Great Sex Rescue, we talk about the different principles that make up great sex. And we also have a lot of fun check-ins and exercises so that you can work through the book with your spouse if you have one, or you don't need to. You can just read through it if you just want some freedom yourself. But if I were to sum it up into two big things to get rid of that would help everything, it's the idea of entitlement. So get rid of any idea that he is entitled to sex. Uh, because usually entitlement is paired with a threat to her. Like she has mm-hmm. to have sex under threat, either because if she doesn't, God will be mad at her. Or if she doesn't, he's going to watch porn or have an affair or lust. Mm-hmm. You know, So mm-hmm. get rid of the entitlements and the threats. And the other big one is get rid of the male-centric view of sex. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think if we understand that sex is not just intercourse, that women actually were designed to need things other than just intercourse <laughs> and that that's important and valid in its own right in as much as, as his desires are valid, um, I think that we would see a lot more freedom and pleasure because a lot of women feel guilty when they need foreplay or they feel like I'm selfish for asking mm. him to do something else for me, but God made women's bodies to need something different. And so, you know, just because you don't work the same way as a man doesn't mean that you're inferior. And there's a lot of women who feel like they're broken and a lot of men who think their wives are broken 
because we don't work the same as men. And so we need to stop seeing sex through a male lens and start seeing sex as something that we each need, but for different reasons. <laughs> and we might need different things out of it, but together it's this passionate adventure that we have. Mm, that is preach. I <laughs> just like <laughs> sh- nodding my head this whole time. Like, yes. Okay. Yes. Let's, let's do this. Um, and I wish we had so much more time with you. Uh, but I guess this is why I just need to read the book. Um, so the final question I want to ask you is, I mean, you looked at horrible data and you saw a lot of horrible messages and things that happened to women because of these messages and to marriages and even to the men, like you said. Um, so do you have any hope that this can change and will change? And if so, what gives you that hope? I don't have hope that the leaders in evangelicalism will change. I really (laughs) don't. I don't think they will. I think they're very wedded to their idea of male-centric, male-entitlement sex. I do have hope that couples will change because I think there's a real hunger for authenticity, for passion, for just plain good marriages and good sex. And people know that what we're doing right now isn't working. And the support that we've gotten just from normal people is overwhelming, just as much as the resistance we've gotten from the powerful is also overwhelming. Hmm. And what we need to do, it's quite distressing, actually, but like we need to train ourselves, like me and my my two co-authors, to not look at the attacks we're getting from the evangelical establishment and just look at the wonderful emails and reviews. I mean, the reviews on Amazon for this book are incredible. Like so Mm. many people are saying this was the freedom I needed. Like this book changed everything for me. And we have so many people who have bought like 20 copies to give to everybody in their small group because they did a sex study two years ago that wrecked them. And now they want to make sure that these (laughs) other women aren't wrecked too, you know, (laughs) like this, this is really our message of freedom. And I think people are so ready for it. And I think, you know, we've been trying to change the evangelical church's view. And by we, I mean, people who are deconstructing, people who are um, critical of the evangelical church. We've been trying to change the view of women by arguing about doctrine for so long, and it's not working. But Now, I think what we can do is say, okay, you want to believe that? You go right ahead, but just know she's going to have a 38% lower chance of orgasming. (laughs) (laughs) And I I just think taking it out of the realm of doctrine and putting it into data uh, can be a really good way of making a difference. And I that's my hope for this book is that it will mm. go beyond just sex and marriage and go towards seeing women as valuable. seeing men not as lust monsters that need to be can, need to be satiated by women but all of us are made in the image of god and all of us are valuable and all of us can be vulnerable and and passionate with our mates without all this stuff in between us mm. Mm. you know um something you just said there is a common theme in just about everyone that we talk to and it really varies and it doesn't doesn't necessarily matter the topic whether it's sexuality or politics or patriarchy or any of the problems that uh, so many so many of us have with the church it's that the establishment refuses to change and that there is thankfully 
and hopefully a subversive movement happening on the margins of faith that's basically kind of like, okay, guys, old boys club, you guys don't want to change? Fine. We're going to go do this without you. Mm-hmm. And and so we don't and, and here's the thing, we don't need your approval. Um, we don't need your stamp of approval. And there is something I think universal about searching for truth and beauty and goodness, whether it's in sexuality or or anything, that it tends to the, the truth tends to uh, lie and be hidden in the margins. And if we move away from the status quo, we often run into it. And I think you hit on that in a very, a very beautiful way. So, okay. So we're, mm-hmm. Melanie said, we're almost done. We're actually not quite done. Um, we would love to just kind of end this really incredible conversation with some rapid fire questions uh, with you, if you're okay with that. Sure. Um, so we've got we've just got a, a couple of quick questions. So just answer them as as, as quickly as you can, uh, just so we can find out a little bit more about you. So I'll ask the first question: um, Why are Canadians so nice? <laughs> um. Oh my goodness! I don't even know. I I think <laughs> it's probably our British heritage, and also the fact that we're a very small country, and so we can't afford to be too mean to anybody. Um, and we also just don't take ourselves very seriously. Like we laugh a lot. And Mm. I think that we're, I think that we're way more likely to laugh at ourselves. Whereas Americans take yourselves way too seriously. Totally. And I don't Mm. get it. Yeah. That's a good point. (laughs) Okay. The second question is, uh, I saw on your website that you and your husband have an RV and pre pandemic days, you would travel around the country for your speaking engagements and live out of your RV which is awesome. So what was your favorite part about living in an RV and traveling around so much? Way less housework. Like it's such a small mm. little thing. There's, it's so easy to keep um, clean, you know, <laughs> and, and, and we're big bird watchers. And so we just love being out in nature. It's just amazing. And we love seeing, mm. we, we, we did all 50 states. Here's, here's something really sad. Right before the pandemic, November of 2000 and what would that have been 2019 yeah we we did Nevada and Utah which was number 49 and 50 for me and yeah and then January of 2020 and February so literally right before the pandemic we did an Antarctic cruise which got me all seven continents And I still haven't been to all 10 provinces. We were going to go to Newfoundland for my 50th. Yeah, my 50th last May, we were going to go to Newfoundland and then the pandemic hit. So I've done all continents, all the states, and I haven't done all the provinces. (laughs) Well, let's hope this pandemic is over soon so you can do that. (laughs) That's crazy. You know, um, we're based, Melanie and I have both lived in Colorado uh, for stages, Uh, but you mentioned Utah. And I'll just say, I thought Colorado was beautiful until we went to Utah and and Melanie's even Mm -hmm. explored it even more than me. It's like you're on another planet. It's absolutely beautiful. All right. So what, uh, you mentioned the, the great parts of RVing around the world. What's the least, what was the least favorite part? Florida, when it gets to be like minus two. Okay. Wait, I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit. I'm sorry. Like Celsius when it's just below freezing. So, you know, so like 30 degrees. Yeah. Yeah. Like in the winter, because we, we, t- we come south in the winter and sometimes it's not warm and then I really feel ripped off. I was just going <laughs> to say, I didn't even think it could get that cold in Florida. 
So yeah, we've been there in like January and you're sitting in a comforter all day, like in the RV. <laughs> wrapped up. Like I came here for the heat. Trying to type uh, with gloves on. Yeah. Oh yeah. So your, your daughter works with you, right? My, both my daughters do. Yeah. My one daughter is my oh. co-author and my son-in-law runs the tech side. And then my other daughter edits our podcast and all of our videos. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. So was it ever weird for any of your kids that you were this like well-known sex expert? <laughs> I, I think it was initially good girl's guide to great sex. My first one was published when Becca was 17, Katie was 15. But oh, wow. and I th- what was what was weird for them was that all of their guy friends thought that was cool and that just creeped them out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I can understand that. But our rule is we we talk about sex all the time but we never say anything that anybody else could picture. So <laughs> so they have, Yeah. So you can talk about sex theoretically but you never say like what you did, when you did it, how you did mm-hmm. it. So yeah. we know nothing personal, but we, we talk about, we talk about it all the time. It's a great <laughs> rule. I like that. All right, Sheila, uh, last question. What is the best compliment you have ever received? I get a lot of emails from people telling me that they were so disillusioned with the church and they were going to walk away from the church, but reading my stuff has made them find Jesus again. Hmm. And there's nothing anyone can say to me that's better than that. Hmm. That's amazing. That's cool. Well, this has been incredible. Um, We would love to schedule part two, three, four, five, and six um, (laughs) of this conversation to just continue because I think we just scratched the surface as it relates to what's next. You know, if we can get rid of some of the toxic understandings of sexuality and move toward the the best. So we will be talking with you again soon. But for anyone who wants more now, um, where can they find out more about you and your books? So The Great Sex Rescue, it's everywhere books are sold. Um, and you can find me at my blog, which is tolovehonorandvacuum.com. And my podcasts are there. I blog almost pretty much every day. Uh, so just look for To Love, Honor, and Vacuum there or on, on Facebook. And, uh, and I'd love to connect. And definitely do check out her book. I know I will be. Um, and we're going to link to everything in the show notes as well. So that way people can find you there too. So Thank you so much, Sheila. This has been mind-blowing in a good way and frustrating and yet also really encouraging. So thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks, Sheila. Wow. What a project they undertook and what heavy results they found. But I'm so thankful for her and for her co-authors and people like them who are doing the research, who are willing to take flack online, who are willing to stand up for our wholeness and flourishing and for a sexual theology that is good for all parties involved. So to find all her info and a link to her book, which I'm in the middle of and it's so great, you need to check it out, head to our show notes, which can be found at holyheretics.org. Really quickly, if you've been enjoying this podcast, would you take just a few minutes to hit the follow button and then to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts? Those reviews really help us to get in front of more people, so we'd be very grateful. Also, we are on Patreon, and we're in the middle of creating a series that is exclusively for our Patreon supporters. So if you're interested in that, head to patreon.com slash holyheretics. Next week, we are interviewing Jess Hugenberg, 
Or you may know her better by her Instagram account name, which is at Welcome to the Process. She's a therapist who specializes in dealing with religious trauma and spiritual abuse. And trust me when I say that she has so much to offer those of us with wounds from our religious past. So make sure to hit follow so you get that next week and we will see you then. This episode was produced by the Sophia Society. Music is by Faith and Foxholes and sound engineering is by Joshua Mudge. 